I don't really remember what the emotions were, but I do remember waking up in the morning in my hotel, getting out of bed and saying to myself, let's go and win the World Championship. Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week has worked with some of the modern day greats. World champions like Jacques Villeneuve, Nico Rosberg, Michael Schumacher and Sebastian Vettel. Just think about that array of drivers for a moment. And it doesn't stop there because these days he's Ferrari Driver Academy head coach, shaping and guiding the careers of Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz and the Ferrari juniors. The man I'm talking about is Jock Clear. Jock's been involved in F1 for more than 30 years. He started out in the design office at Lola, but it was as a race engineer that he made a name for himself and got to experience some incredible highs, as well as some almost unbelievable controversies. To give you a little taste of what's to come, Jock was Jacques Villeneuve's race engineer at Jerez in 1997, that unforgettable title-deciding race when Jacques and Michael Schumacher collided. And then, would you believe it, Jock went on to engineer Michael at Mercedes. He talks about all of this and more, as well as providing some fascinating insights into how he's helped some truly special drivers become even better. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jock, it's great to have you on the show. You've spent more than 30 years in Formula One, would you believe it? From a race engineering point of view, What's the biggest change you've seen during that time? What's the biggest change? Maybe it would be slightly offensive, but hopefully not, to, to say just the level of professionalism. And I don't think any of the, the drivers from my earlier years would, would mind me saying that because I think they all, you know, they're all still around the sport and they all see a much higher level of professionalism, not in the drivers per se, but just in the whole organisation and the, whole, the way teams operate and and the way we go about the business of, of F1 racing has just got bigger and better and chocolate coated and all this sort of thing. So in a nutshell, I think that's what's precipitated most of the changes over the years is just a, a, an ever increasing level of professionalism or complexity or whatever word you might use. But when it gets more complex, it has to become more professional. If you see what I mean, you have to put a lot more structure into it. And, and some may say that's, you know, it should be about just a load of blokes going racing with their with their racing cars, shouldn't it? And, and it still is. We're just doing it at, at a much more complex level, at a much more professional level. Let me rephrase that question then by saying, how has the job of being a racing driver changed during that time? Well, I'm not a racing driver, so I can't answer specifically. But I'm from what I observe, and, and I observe a lot of racing drivers and have observed a lot of racing drivers, I, I think it's allowed them to hone their skills in a way that perhaps you can liken to to athletes more traditional athletes on on the track i mean you know a, a sprinter or you know in the same way as as they've honed the nutrition and and the the training regimes and the oxygen up, uptake and all this sort of thing our drivers 
are obviously much more aware of that level of preparation in all sports. But the professionalism within our sport has allowed them to really engage in that because that sort of suits our engineers. You know, as soon as you hear a driver talking about, you know, I'm, I'm measuring my O2 levels, you know, every day and I'm, I'm monitoring my sleep patterns. You think, oh, fantastic. He's nearly becoming a racing car. Wouldn't it be great if he just sort of becomes another another part of the racing car that we can data log? And of course, once you start gathering data, there's a whole load of people at, at all the F1 teams, you know, back at the factory who are immensely interested in having a look at that data. And so it's probably allowed the driver to to actually become more integrated within the team, even though the team is much bigger. And therefore, it's probably a lot more difficult now to integrate with the whole of Ferrari and the whole of McLaren and the whole of Mercedes and whichever team you look at than it was back in 1978 when the whole team was 10 people around the car and that was it. But I think they've all gone hand in hand, which I suppose is just the organic growth of the sport. It, you know, that that's why it's gone hand in hand, because one has led the other. You know, the professionalism on our side as a team side has allowed drivers to bring a new level of professionalism as a driver. And I think they've engaged quite well with that. You know, when people talk about Michael being the sort of Michael took that to a new level, his fitness level was that much beyond where Senna had been, where where Prost had been, where, where Mansell had been, and then drivers all realised, OK, we, now we need to be super fit. Jock, for all of the nutrition and sleep patterns and fitness, the quick guys now would still have been the quick guys 40 yeah, years ago. Yeah, I mean, the question I get asked probably most often is, yeah, but how would Senna fare nowadays? The fact is Senna would fare just as well nowadays as he did back then. Not if he was as fit as he was then, because he simply wouldn't be able to cope at this level, but he would make himself as fit as he needs to be now, because all any of the people at any in any sport, and you know, it's not just racing drivers, in any sport you look at, all they were doing back then was the best they could, and the technology and, and the knowledge was such that they believed at the time that was the best they could be doing, if you see what I mean. And the good drivers of those days would simply be doing the same regimes or better in Senna's case. You know, he would have found something special and, and he would be the guy that we were saying, you know, not only is he a three, four time world champion, he's also the fittest guy out there. You know that Senna had the mindset that whoever he was up against, he was going to be better and stronger and faster. And he was at the time. And if he were doing it now, he would have that same determination. And obviously, we would love to know if he were here today, would he be the... Oh, mouth-watering, um, isn't it, to yeah. think about that? But, Jock, you have worked with so many great drivers. Let's talk about some of them now. And we'll start with the present. Let's start with Charles, Charles mm -hmm. Leclerc. What impresses you about him? Mental strength. If you say, OK put it in a nutshell you know these are the these are the drivers i've worked with put your finger on the one element of this driver that really shines through mental strength certainly with charles quite astoundingly strong mentally are you referring back to spa 2019 everything that went on there with antoine hubert and still coming through is that what you're referring to or no, is, it, not, is it much not, broader not than particularly that? no right. no pretty much everything he's done you know i mean it's easy to forget simply because he is who he is and he has done what he's done in the last two, three years. It's easy to forget that coming into Ferrari as a Ferrari, official Ferrari driver at that age, that's got to be intimidating, isn't it? My word, that's got to be intimidating. You know, it's intimidating for Sebastian Vettel when he comes here with four world championships. That is intimidating stuff. And how he's carried himself pretty much from day one. There's times when he hasn't been the quickest driver. There's times when he struggled. He's had races where he's chewed through his tyres twice as quickly as his teammate. And, 
you know, so it's not just that, yeah, yeah, but he's quick, you know, as, soon, as long as he's quick. Yes, he is super quick. And we've seen how good a qualifier he is. I think qualifying is a good example of mental strength because I think actually qualifying is an occasion where actually you've got to perform. You know, it's it's a bit like taking the penalty at the at the end of the Euros. That is pressure. You've got to deliver now. You know, there's no or you know that wasn't great, but next one will be all right. Qualifying is qualifying, and the fact that he's quick in qualifying, I think, is another manifestation of his mental strength. But all sorts of behind the scenes conversations and stresses that he's been under that I'm really, really impressed at how little they impact him come Sunday afternoon. If Ferrari deliver a championship winning car in 2022, is he ready? I ought to give it some thought, but my initial reaction is, God, yes, he is he's absolutely ready. Yeah, absolutely ready. You have to balance that with there is no substitute for actually being in that position where oh my God, I could win a championship here. That is a different level of pressure. But all I can say at the moment is he's managed and coped with every other level of pressure so far. And and yeah, he's made mistakes. You know, people listening might say, yeah, but you know, he made loads of mistakes in his first year. Yes, he did. But you're, you know, all drivers are going to make mistakes. We know very well that Max has made lots of mistakes in his earlier career, but nobody's telling me that Max isn't ready to win a championship. And so, all I'm saying is, so far, he's met every challenge and been up for it and, and, and been strong enough to, to move forward from those mistakes. And as such, I think if you're put in a position where you're, you're going to be challenging for a, t- a championship, it's going to be against Max. It's going to be against Lewis. It's going to be tough. You are going to, you know, you are going to slip up. You're going to make a, a mistake. You're going to drop some points. But will he cope with that? Yes, he absolutely will cope with that. He's not going to crumble, uh, you know, when, when he drops it in qualifying and has to start from P13 or whatever, he'll just swallow it and deal with it. And the next race, he'll come back and put it on pole. And Right. On the topic of what makes a champion, you've worked with lots of them. I'm thinking Villeneuve, Button, Schumacher, Hamilton, Vettel, Raikkonen. What is the similarity that they all share? <laughs> that's or a, is, is, that, is it that's, more than that's one That's a really difficult one. The honest answer is I don't think they really have genuinely a common trait. So I don't think if you'd like me to say this is the ingredient that all champions have, I can't put my finger on that ingredient. The mental strength aspect of it, I think, is something that is common. And whether that manifests itself as extreme confidence or extreme ability to bounce back or an arrogance, or whatever that way it might manifest itself. Certainly, again, there's a mental strength that they all have, a self-belief that they all have. But I think that is probably a result of other things. Do you see what I mean? I think they probably have other inner skills that make them good racing drivers, and then their their objective brain just arrives at the point of saying, no, 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 I'm good enough to do this. Now, whether those that don't quite make it have somewhere in there almost a self-destructive loop where as soon as they recognize that they have most of the talents enough to win maybe some self-doubt comes in and actually they undermine their own their own ability so I can't honestly say that that is the single common theme between all of them that self-confidence is something that or whether when you're as good as they are you are going to be self-confident but certainly none of those names you've mentioned were particularly guilty of, of, you know, not believing in, in themselves or lacking their own abilities or lacking their own judgment. We'll come on to them individually in a minute. 
But when I said Schumacher, I was referring to Michael. But of course, it's Schumacher times two because <laughs> you're now working with Mick. Does he remind you of Michael? He does simply because, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He's so much like his dad, you know, in his mannerisms and, and his accent. And that's quite enjoyable in itself. That reminds me of good days. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed working with Michael. And Mick is similarly such a pleasant, such a pleasant young man to deal with. That's not a given. You know, a lot of racing drivers, they are successful and they do what they do. And ultimately, you have to say, yeah, but at the end of the day, He's paid to drive a racing car fast and that's what he does. So we, we'll sort of, you know, we'll forget about some of the other more difficult aspects of them when they're out of the car. I mean, Mick is just a, a very, very pleasant young man to deal with in, in every way. Um, so, you know, whatever he does in life, he'll, you know, he'll, he'll be, he'll be very well served by just being a top bloke and and getting on with people so i enjoy that aspect in terms of the the technical the driving i'd say it's probably too early you know the difficulty for me is of course i worked with michael right at the end of his career where he had seven world championships and i'm working with mick right at the beginning of his of his career where you know admittedly he's he's won f3 he's won f2 and he's been winning but you know he's sort of arriving now in a situation where he he's just desperate to prove himself but he's not able to do that in the in the car he's got at the moment and in the situation he's in at the moment but you get to see the data mm. are you pleased with his progress this year at Haas? yes and 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 somewhat surprised i mean obviously we've worked with him for quite a while now ferrari in the in the young drivers academy or the ferrari driver academy we've worked with him for a while so we know him quite well It'll be no surprise to him to hear that often the the criticism that was levelled at him in the smaller formulae was he takes quite a while to get up to speed. You know, he's not someone who's going to get in it and bam, you're like, wow, this kid's quick. But give him a second year in the formula and he really starts to come good and, and his consistency shows through. Actually, I'm quite impressed with his out and out speed this year, to be honest. I mean, people said to me at the beginning of the year, yeah, but, you know, how's he going to get on against Mazepin? And I said, well... Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Mazepin actually starts off out qualifying him a few times because, you know, Mick takes a while to get up to speed, but actually not the case. And, and Mick's continued to make good progress in that area. So it was an area that we identified and it's an area that Mick has addressed. And I think that is his best trait at the moment. You tell him something once and he's on it and he deals with it and you're like oh my god he's fixed it and that will serve him very very well intelligent drivers are such a pleasure to work with and they are fundamentally self-motivating because as soon as you give them something to learn or something to improve and they do so they just get even more engaged right and give me something else to improve what can we do next and now i'll, I'll improve on that whereas of course if you know if you have a, a hugely talented driver who's super quick but they have some failings you know we need to work on this or we need to work on that and every time you do it, they're like, no, we, we still haven't really got anywhere with that, have we? They sort of shy away from it. No, 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 I, I just want to go back to what I was doing before. You know, I was always quick when I was just doing it like this. And, and that's a common theme, actually. Well, not a common theme, but, but it's something that you do see more often than I'd like, really, is drivers who very quickly get frustrated that they're no longer right at the front or they're no longer smashing their teammate. And they just want to resort to, I just want to do it like I used to. Well... Sport doesn't work like that. Nobody resorts to playing like they used to. We all know that you need to keep stepping forward. And Mick seems to love every aspect of Formula 1, even the media <laughs> side. He says he enjoys that. What do you mean even the media side? <laughs> yes, you, suggest, you suggest that that might be one of the less <laughs> enjoyable. But pre-season, he said, I'm looking forward to all of it. 
including the media side. So just relishing every moment. Well, yeah, I, I would hope that's honest. And he's had a, an upbringing which is different. You know, his dad was a, a multi-world champion and he's, for want of a better word, lived in the shadow of, of that all his life, really. And I think from what I know of him and, and just those discussions I've had on the topics, I think he likes the opportunity to deliver himself, if you see what I mean. Because all the time he's not saying anything, he's just son of Michael. Whereas as soon as he engages with the media and talks to people, you know, and, and my daughters, you know, and my daughters are 17 and they talk about Mick Schumacher. For them, it's irrelevant that he's Michael's son. They talk about Mick Schumacher and how lovely he is and, and you listen to him on interviews and blah, blah, blah. And I think he's actually enjoying people wanting to know about him and him having the opportunity to present himself because actually he's, he's got a lot to present. If you love listening to great Formula One stories, you'll love F1's new documentary podcast series, F1 On The Edge. It's a collection of seven incredible tales from Formula One history, told by the drivers, team bosses, mechanics, reporters and fans who were there. In F1 On The Edge, legendary figures from the sport share their astonishing memories. Mika Hakkinen tells the story of a secret McLaren invention worth half a second a lap, which was dramatically discovered and exposed by an eagle-eyed photographer. You'll also hear an exclusive recording of a furious Ayrton Senna, who was enraged by the upstart rookie Eddie Irvine at the 1993 Japanese Grand Prix. Damon Hill has some great memories of that weekend. Plus, how David Coulthard survived a tragic plane crash, then raced to a podium just days later. And a breathtaking drama from the early days of the sport when legendary champion Juan Manuel Fangio was kidnapped at gunpoint on the eve of a race. F1 On The Edge tells these incredible stories and more like never before with interviews from Ross Braun, Jacques Villeneuve, Martin Brundle, Eddie Jordan, Steve Nichols and many other F1 greats. All seven episodes are available right now. Perfect listening to get you through the F1 summer break. You can listen for free exclusively on Spotify. You don't need a subscription. Just download the app and search for F1 On The Edge. Jock, let's talk now about Michael. You called him, as you said earlier, at Mercedes at the tail end of his career. Mm. How long did it take him to get back up to speed? Obviously, we know now how quick Rosberg is. But of course, at the time, Rosberg had arrived from Williams with a sort of, yeah, he's, he was pretty good at Williams. And yeah, he's probably all right. But, you know, he's probably not great. And he and Michael arrived at the same time. So it wasn't like Nico was firmly established or it wasn't like Michael was established. They both arrived at the same time. Bang. Michael had been away for a few years. Nico had obviously been honing his skills, as they say, in, in Williams. And Nico was quicker than Michael to start with. And people were like, oh, you know, he just shouldn't have come back, should he? Because he can't even beat Rosberg now. Now, of course, in, with hindsight, we now know that beating Rosberg is not very easy. <laughs> and, you know, someone else with seven world championships struggled to beat Rosberg. I mean, yeah, clearly Lewis had got the better of Nico over the years. But I think if you ask Lewis, he would firmly admit that Nico was one of his strongest opponents, especially in qualifying, which is, you know, where the obvious comparisons were made because people would just say, oh, 
Michael, you know, two and a half tenths off Rosberg and Rosberg's not great. Well, as I say, with hindsight, I look back on that now and think actually Michael was a lot closer straight away than we gave him credit for because actually Nico was a very quick driver. And Michael then went on to put it on pole in Monaco and you think... (laughs) Again, in hindsight, that is quite a special achievement because Nico was actually pretty good in Monaco. Certainly at Mercedes, we were never, ever reflecting the thoughts of some of the media. You know, none of us in any coffee room discussion ever said, you know, Michael shouldn't have come back, really, should he? You could see why he did it. You could see how much it was doing for the team. I mean, there's no doubt the work that Nico and Michael did at that time underpinned a lot of what's gone on since if you see what I mean and Michael yes he was 42 years old yes he wasn't quite as quick as he was maybe but he still knew which bits of a racing car were important and he was still pointing people in the right direction Uh, so technically he was hugely important to the team at that time. Did you sense he got frustrated at any time? No no that was the great thing and and he would say jockey I, I just love driving I'm just enjoying driving the only time he got frustrated was he was not starting from pole in Monaco, you know. Of course, because he had the five-place penalty. The, yeah. Exactly, the penalty from yeah. Barcelona, which was so, so disappointing. And that frustrated him because, of course, he, he sort of knew that that was probably his one chance to win one more race. So that, yeah, that really upset him. But, he, you know, it, it was what it was. And we, we couldn't argue with the penalty, to be honest, because it was a fairly outrageous move in Barcelona. But no, overall, Michael was never frustrated. And, and again... He was just a pleasure to work with, a pleasure to work with. And, and Nico won't mind me saying this. Uh, I engineered Nico in, in 2010 opposite Michael. And then I, I went over to the other side of the table for the Why next year. Why did you make the switch? Well, Nico and I didn't get on particularly well. Just as a race engineer driver, we actually we get on very well now and, and we still stay in touch. And he's been very helpful to me over the years since in talking about some of the driver psychology things. So actually that relationship improved. But he'd come from Williams where he had a, a really good relationship with Tony Ross. And so Nico and I sort of didn't get on famously. And similarly, Michael's engineer at the time, and he didn't get on particularly well. So Ross had a little bit of a rethink and said, you know, would I mind not working with Nico anymore because Nico didn't like me? And <laughs> could I come work with, with Michael? So I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, we'll, we'll try and forget about 97. We'll try not to bring that up too often. But Go anyway. on, I was going to ask you, <laughs> did you talk about no, we didn't. No, we didn't. We never spoke about it. The elephant in the room. Exactly. When Ross <laughs> announced that we'd signed... Rosberg and and Schumacher. I think Rosberg was announced before Schumacher. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, when he announced that we'd signed Schumacher, he had a quick meeting with the engineers and he said to Andrew Shovelin and myself, because Andrew Shovelin was Jensen's engineer and I was Ruben's engineer. So we had two race engineers and we had to decide who was going to engineer who. So Ross said, we need to have a a bit of a meeting and decide who's going to engineer who. And I said, this is going to be a short meeting because I don't want to engineer him. That's for sure. So and Andrew Shovley engineered Michael and I engineered Nico for 2010. And then ch- things changed around. A- Andrew Shovlin was, was promoted to chief race engineer. And so we had a vacancy on the other side. We brought Bono on. Bono hadn't been a race engineer before, but, you know, he was brought up to the race engineer. And, and Ross said, we need someone on Michael's side. You know, Michael's going to need someone with a bit of experience just to hold Bono's hand for the first couple of races or first year or whatever so I moved over to the other side of the table and Michael and I got on 
absolutely fantastically, really did. And that little group, Bono, well, as we, we've seen now, Bono is fantastic. And, and so that, that group worked really well together. And I was so pleasantly surprised to find how enjoyable it was to work with Michael that those couple of years were, were actually a pleasure. And yeah, he didn't get frustrated at all and, and we all enjoyed it. And I think people could already see that the team was growing with, you know, OK, Michael wasn't delivering perhaps what he delivered in 2004 or five, but you know, the team was growing with him and, and that's what people could see. And we're, he was enjoying that. He was enjoying that he was having an impact. You were at that team, the Brackley-based team, <laughs> let's call yeah. it that, from the beginning, of course. We're yeah. now talking about the Mercedes era, which started in, in 2010. But how did the team change during the years that you were there from right at the beginning with BAR yeah. to when you left? Are the fundamentals that have won all these world championships over the last seven years the same as 1999. It's interesting because I would say that certainly by the time I left, which was the middle of 15, so they'd already they'd already won the, the 14 championship and it was already clear that they were into that dominant era. By the time I left, we all sort of had the view that we hadn't really changed much at all. It was fundamentally the same group of people. And we'd been through the nightmare of the growing pains, so to speak. The Honda years were difficult, but they were weirdly enjoyable because we learned a lot and we didn't really expect ourselves at that young age. We didn't expect ourselves to be right at the front. So those first few years, the BAR years or the British American Racing years and then the BAR Honda years were, yeah, growing pains. But then by 2007, 2008, then we were getting frustrated. We were going backwards again. 2004, we finished second in the championship. And then by 2007, we were back to being eighth or seventh in the championship. And, and then we got all frustrated. And are we going, you know, maybe we, we don't know how to do this. Maybe we're just no good at this. And then, of course, Ross arrived. And, of course, you thought, OK, that's it. You know, Ross is going to bring all these people in from Ferrari. We'll probably all get moved aside Let's see what happens. And of course, Ross brought absolutely nobody in, not one person at that stage. Maybe later on, he brought Aldo Costa in. And of course, he brought Michael. And you think, well, if there's going to be two people, you're going to bring in Aldo Costa and Michael were pretty big hitters and, and made a huge difference. But the point was, the core of that team didn't change. And of course, the Braun year was just the stuff of fantasies, you know, the stuff of dreams. But the, the great thing was we all stood there at the beginning of the Braun year when having won the first four races or whatever, three out of the first four races and thought, no, we can actually do this. We, we were right. We aren't stupid. We're, we're not idiots. We can do this. And, and that was just Ross pointing everybody in the right direction and giving us some belief, letting us believe in ourselves again. So how that's changed since then to what they have now, I'm probably not in a position to say, but by the time I left in 15, it still hadn't changed dramatically. The mood had changed a bit because, again, maybe Mercedes taking over, it, it became another level of professionalism, but that was what was required, if you see what I mean. And maybe those years of 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe if I look back at it and I was really able to stand back, maybe I would see that actually, yeah, that it did change shape. The dynamic did change, but that's probably true. But, but only in those latter years and maybe only because suddenly you were in a position when we're heading for something big, we're going to be dominant. We had to be ready in 14 and we were ready. And that was sort of rubbed off from HPP. We'd joined up with HPP in 
2009, of course, Mercedes engine in 2009. And over those years with, with HPP, they were a different level of organisation and, and structure and methodology. And we took all that on board. You know, we sort of realised, my God, these guys are, you know, this is, but we realised that's what it takes. So I think that probably washed over to Brackley quite heavily, but all the same people at Brackley embraced that. You know, it wasn't that anybody needed to be taught anything they just realized how there was a better way and that was again the organic growth from there was was just to adopt what was working very well at HPP and adapt it to what we were doing on chassis side and so yeah I mean if you asked anybody to stand back and look at how it changed it probably hadn't changed dramatically but I think it's interesting from the inside you didn't feel like you changed much at all which I think is probably one of the secrets of success is you didn't feel like people were imposing change on you or or everything was like oh god we, but yeah but do we have to do it like that we've you know we used to do it like this it all just sort of evolved in, as I say almost in an organic way so now you mentioned 2009 referred to it as a fairy tale my goodness it was <laughs> you were working with Rubens mm-hmm I don't in any way want to ask a negative question because it was such an amazing season. <laughs> yeah. But why did Jensen get more out of that car than Rubens? When the time came, I think Jensen was more ready. I think Rubens, Rubens probably didn't or, or wasn't aware as early as Jensen maybe that it was all looking very strong. I don't know whether it was because Jensen can I, was... Can I interrupt you there? It was... Very, I was at the Barcelona test and I think it was... But that was too late. That was too late, is that That was too late. Oh, okay. And interestingly, we looked at, because we didn't do the the first test, we missed the first test because I think we hadn't got the engine sorted out or or whatever. And of course, at that time, everybody was saying, oh, they've missed the first test. They're probably not even going to, you know, they're going to go under. And I think, I believe that Ron Dennis was bending over backwards to help us and you know because it, it, everybody was sort of like oh you know this this, this isn't going to happen is it it's all just going to collapse and we were sitting back at Brackley not at the first test and of course we still have all our vehicle dynamics guys doing simulations and so they would simply look at the Barcelona test and like 27 27 6 on well they may be on the 50 kilos oh we'll wait until they do some low fuel runs because they don't you know but it doesn't look very quick at the moment and then you know, people are doing like 22.7 on low fuel runs and and our vehicle dynamics guys are saying well our simulations suggest we should be doing we'd be doing low 21s with that car and of course we're all like well well clearly your simulations are wrong then you know duh <laughs> again the vehicle the vehicle dynamics blokes put the wrong number in or something yeah you know you've probably got the wrong tires on it or something but so, yeah we dismissed it but no they kept coming back and saying no we've checked it we can't understand why everybody's going so slowly so then we started to sort of really look at it. And, and sure enough, before the, the car ever rolled, we were like, blimey, we need to get to this next test because I'm sure, well, we're pretty confident we're going to be quicker than that. <laughs> and of course, Jensen went out on a scrub set of tyres and went seven tenths quicker than everybody. And You say Rubens only woke up to the fact there. Why was that too late? Because you're not at Melbourne at that point. You've still got time to react or... I think this comes back to the driver psychology. And I think this is probably the overlap of the old guard and the new guard. If we talk about Max and Lewis and Charles or or even Max and Charles and and Lewis is sort of bestraddled the, the two maybe where again, they've, they've taken it to a new level. You know, Michael took it to a new level in the nineties and, and these guys now have taken it to a new level. Rubens was probably the last of that era that Michael's era and driver psychology driver preparation was simply you know well I'll go for a I'll go for a run 
a couple of weeks before Melbourne and I'll do some sit-ups and then I'll be fine, if you see what I mean. The fitter drivers were getting fitter and fitter. But it wasn't, it's not just about getting fit. It's a whole mental preparation. It's a whole getting your head into gear. Okay, I need to be thinking about this. How do I approach the season? You know, what are my short-term objectives? What are my long-term objectives? And this is the stuff that other sports have been doing for a few years now. You know, you, you look at the American sports have been doing it for 20 years and athletics has been doing it for 20 years and F1 is behind in these things and is, is catching up. But so in 2009... The older drivers weren't used to this being a requisite that you were going to get found out if you weren't absolutely on it the beginning of the season. Now, I don't know how Rubens would do things differently now if you went back to him now and said in October of the previous year, next year's car is going to be a championship winning car. You need to be ready. Rubens is, a, is a, again, a professional enough driver that he would now know what to do and, and he would prepare himself. But at that time, A, he had no idea that the car was going to be ready. And I think he was not of the mindset that guys have now. Whereas Jensen, I think, was was quite ahead of his time there. He was he was the guy who really got into triathlons and he was starting to really value being very prepared physically for everything that F1 could throw at him, that his job could throw at him. And I think he was just a much better prepared sportsman and the frustration, I think, was that actually Rubens, I think, was probably just as talented, you know, probably better on, on one lap than Jensen on some occasions. So, that, you know, it wasn't that he was not as quick as Jensen. He was every bit as good as Jensen in all of the little areas you look at, but he wasn't as complete as Jensen. And maybe that was the aspect that gelled Jensen together as a much more complete driver certainly for that year, was that he embraced the mental and, and, the, and the physical and the, the structure and the training, which we now see as de rigueur for all of the drivers nowadays. But again, maybe Jensen was one of those that was engaged in it and Rubens, who'd had a previous 10 years where that wasn't a factor. Did your side of the garage get frustrated or did you still embrace the fairy tale and the wins, for example, the one in Monza with the yeah, crowd? Exactly, and, yeah, exactly. So you were able, still able to celebrate? Yeah, yeah, we, we were. And, and actually, Rubens had a better second half of the year than Jensen did, which is part of my justification for saying that he wasn't ready because... And Jensen won it in the first six races. I think he won six of the first seven races. Now, that was it. And it was all, it was all over by then because it was a two-horse race at that stage. It was only a Braun that was going to win those first six races. Um, whereas in the second half of the year, the other teams had quarters. So the fact that Rubens won two in the second half of the year was testament to how good he was in the second half of the year, because actually we were up against cars that were quicker than us by then. Whereas Jensen just had to beat Rubens. And as I say, unfortunately, Rubens, I think he was undercooked for the beginning of the year. I'd like to talk about Jacques Villeneuve next. And... It's sort of hand in hand with driver psychology because Absolutely. he's an extraordinary driver, mm. I seem to remember. And he comes in in 96 from IndyCar. Mm -hmm. How quickly did he get up to speed? Let's start with that. We'll do it in chronological <laughs> order, actually. Oh, you don't need me to answer that. The record books answer that. He put it on pole at his first race. But from his first test, because he came over in from mid his first test, didn't he? How his, quickly did he get up to speed then? His first test was in Silverstone, and he was in a bit of a shootout with David Coulthard. Um, now, I, I don't know exactly what the, the politics were at the time and whether the deal was already done, but I was engineering DC at the time. So DC sort of was looking at that as presumably this is a shootout for my seat next year, you know, and it's going to be down to this. And 
Jack got up to speed reasonably quickly on that day. And then at the end of the day, they had two new sets of tyres to do a sort of quali sim at the end of the day. DC had done the first run, Jack had done the first run, and Jack was um, about a tenth and a half, two tenths slower than DC. And then DC went out and did another run, which wasn't as quick as his first one. So he, so he was still a tenth and a half quicker than Jack, but he was a bit pissed off that he hadn't managed to improve on it. And Jack still had one run to do. So I think David Brown was probably, or yeah, it was David Brown at the time. I think David Brown was looking after Jack at the time in the other car. And DC's car was sort of parked in the garage. It was back in the days when, when you did two-car testing. And we sat on the, on the toolbox at the back of the, the Lister at the back of the garage. We sat on, the, on there. And um, DC was sort of like, this is not good, jockey. This is not good, jockey. <laughs> What's going to happen here? I'm, I'm like... Well, we'll just have to see. You know, I, I, I don't think he'll improve because I don't think the track's got any better. But, but you could genuinely, you, you know, DC was panicking and powerless at that point because he was just sitting on the, on the toolbox. And anyway, Jack left the garage, forgot to turn the fuel pumps on and ran out of fuel in about the third corner <laughs> and didn't do a lap. So ultimately, he didn't end up as quick as DC. But it was close enough that our current F1 driver, who'd done a couple of years in that car, was thinking, my God, this bloke could be quicker than me. And the writing was on the wall, was it, from that moment? Because obviously Bernie yeah. was keen for him to yeah. come over and, and, and DC probably saw that and saw the opportunity at McLaren and away he went. Yeah, as I say, I don't, I don't really know. I can't, or, uh, I can't really remember exactly what the, what the politics were at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, history, history says that, that Jacques was signed and, and DC went to McLaren, which I think he was very happy about at the time because clearly that McLaren was a hell of a car to drive for the next few years. And now, you hit it off with Jacques from the outset. What was it about him that worked so well for you both? Well, I, I sort of liked the fact that he was a bit of a rebel. You've got to look at this in the context of driving for Williams. Williams was, and still is, a fantastic team, a fantastic team. A team in the real sense of the word team, you know, everything about working at Williams was just about Frank and Patrick and a really, really healthy dynamic with all of, all of the people in the team, with the drivers. And a lot of people talk about, oh, yeah, but, but Williams never treated their drivers well. I don't think you'll find a driver that would ever have much complaint about how they enjoyed their time at Williams. They'll, they'll find occasions where they'll say, oh yeah, Frank said this, or Patrick used to do this, or you had no respect for me. Or, but actually, you, if you said to them, okay, so did you enjoy your time at Williams? Absolutely. They thoroughly enjoyed their time at Williams. So this was a really great team dynamic, but it was all about Frank and Patrick. And actually, to the extent that the drivers, you know, were really quite sort of oppressed at, at times you know and, and obviously I wasn't there when when Prost was there and maybe it was very different with a, a driver of his caliber but certainly I was there with Damon and he struggled to get his voice heard at times so actually Jacques arriving as this young kid with no real track record apart from having one Indy of course which is quite a track record but in Europe it counts for nothing you know Patrick had very little respect for the fact that he'd won Indy 500 and the Indy cha car championship and so the fact that Jack was willing straight away to defend his corner and put up a fight if he didn't agree with what was going on. And, and you know, I don't, I don't mean in, in areas that he shouldn't be involved, you know, just in what he needed when he was driving the car. This is how it is. I, I need this or I could do with that. He wouldn't be told otherwise. Did he have a quirky driving style? 
Oh God, yes. I've sort of oh, sort of everything. Yeah. Everything. Everything was quirky about. I mean, any other driver gets in his car, they're not going to be able to drive it. it. Had a stupidly short throttle pedal throw. So most drivers nowadays have about fifty millimeters, seventy millimeters of throttle travel. So that's at the ball of your foot. You're traveling fifty millimeters, seventy millimeters to have the, the modulation. The shortest I've no, known anybody else is about forty-five. Jacques had twenty-two. Now, 22 millimetres is nothing, but anything longer than that, and he was like, no, this throttle pedal's far too long, I can't drive that. Patrick would be like, what on earth is this idiot doing? You, yeah, does he have any understanding about how a bloody racing car works? But he wouldn't be told, you know, I don't care what Patrick says, I want, you know, that is Why? too long. Why did he want such a, a short trip? Who knows? It's one of those things like... People often talk about driver's seats and how specific they are. And again, that was, I mean, his seat, his steering wheel, I used to have to hand build his steering wheels. And again, Patrick used to go mental. Patrick would come into the back of the garage and I'd be there doing another steering wheel with a load of tape and blue tack, making it the shape Jack wanted. Because back then they didn't have molded grips. They all have molded grips now that suit their hand, but they didn't then. They just had a normal rim, just like you did in your road car when it was just a bit smaller. And of course, Jack said, if I I can grip it properly then actually I have more control which is quite logical which is why all drivers now have have molded grips but back then nobody did and it was good enough for Alan Jones so why does bloody Villeneuve have to have molded grips well I said if the kid says he'll go quicker with molded grips I'm going to give him molded grips so I did them by hand and of course if Patrick everybody like Patrick come in quick put it under the bench <laughs> all right Patrick yeah but if he caught me doing another talk how many times have i told you leave those bloody steering wheels alone wasting our bloody time <laughs> but it was great you know that yeah. was what was williams was all about and don't get me wrong patrick loved having jack there he'll tell you now that jack was not a very good racing driver and actually bloody nearly threw away a championship with a very good car but he doesn't really mean that he enjoyed that dynamic for sure because he likes shouting at people and jack gave him lots to shout about is that on off switch of a throttle pedal one of the reasons why jack wasn't that good in the wet or yeah. doesn't have a great uh, absolutely, record in the yes wet? absolutely yeah yeah i think it was and i never succeeded in persuading him otherwise he he doesn't really agree with that and who knows whether, whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, I don't know. We never, we never got to the bottom of it. But yes, he didn't have a great record in the, in the wet. Maybe also because we have this view of drivers as either understeery drivers or oversteery drivers. So drivers who you can clearly see drive the car with it really on the nose and with the rear moving around a lot. And drivers that drive it completely nailed at the back and they're just winding on more and more steering lock everywhere jack was very much an oversteery driver so he liked a car that that rotated very quickly and that in the wet is going to be very tricky so whether that was you know and people sort of people say to me yeah but michael was an over michael wasn't oversteery driver at all he was an understeery driver that's why he was very good in the wet because you, you you know with, with a load of understeer actually a, a, a car in the wet will be a little bit more forgiving and and you have a little bit more time so i don't know whether it was his inherent driving style that maybe didn't lend itself to being great in the wet well come on to 97 in a sec i just wanted to touch on 1996 you've said already that jack put it on pole mm. in the first race in melbourne then he had was it uh, an engine problem so damon ends up winning but looking at the season as a whole we then go into the title decider in japan did you believe that you could win it there because damon actually no. needed a dnf didn't he and so did you kind yeah. of accept that it was over yeah. going into that yeah race? i think we did because you know, I don't, I don't think Jack, and I, I, know, I know 
Jack is very much, for the English speaking, we'll, we'll understand, Jack was very much a Marmite driver or a Marmite person. You, you either love him or you hate him. And I know a lot of people have, have a lot of critical things to say about Jack. But actually, he's a very, very honest guy. And that's one of the reasons I enjoyed working with him. I, I cut my teeth in sport, in rugby. I think certainly in this country, we all understand very well the ethics of rugby are very, very high. You know, we look at how rugby players treat referees and you never speak back to the referee. You never touch the referee. You never argue with a referee. And so I had this sort of, I was brought up with this sportsmanship. And as soon as I worked with Jacques, he had that. And I really respected that. And so there was lots of aspects of what he did in the car where you recognise that, no, he respects the fact that that is sport. So he went into that last race. I can honestly tell you, he would not have wanted Damon to have had a DNF that would have then given him an opportunity to win the championship. And of course, he went into the last race without an opportunity to actually beat Damon to the championship, if you see what I mean. If it had been a straight fight where if he'd won it and Damon had, had finished second, then Jack would have taken the title. He would have been absolutely up for it. But the fact that we needed a mathematical win meant that as far as he was concerned, it was over. Right. Let's fast forward 12 months now <laughs> to Hareth 97. Yeah. You go into that season finale, one point behind Michael Schumacher. Mm. What was the mood in the camp going into that one? What was Jacques like? How nervous was he? Not very. Not very. And I remember, I, I, I still surprise myself at the memory of this. I wasn't nervous either. So to answer your question, I can only imagine I don't really remember what the emotions were but I do remember waking up in the morning in my hotel and getting out of bed and saying to myself let's go and win the world championship and I, I vividly remember saying that it sounds a bit of a cliche but I do remember saying that and I know that's what I thought I didn't think oh shit this is going to be a hell of a day what's going to happen today I remember throwing back the sheets and saying let's go and win the world championship and I know Jacques will have said the same he didn't show any nerves I think he was very prepared for, for that day. Do you agree, though, with Patrick's assessment that he very nearly did throw that championship away? Let's go back to Melbourne. Ah, he exactly. was two seconds a lap faster in qualifying than yeah. the first non-Williams. We yeah. all thought, I remember we all thought, well, this is game over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, brilliant. No, I don't, and don't get me wrong, Patrick may well have plenty of occasions when he could say Jacques threw away races or threw away opportunities to score points and he did but of course a championship is about putting together a championship if you see what I mean that sounds obvious but my point being that the way Jack drove is the way Jack drove and that's what delivered a championship if you'd asked him to drive differently so if he had been more conservative in some situations then maybe he wouldn't have rammed it down the inside of, of turn six in in Hareth and we know what happened then. Jack Villeneuve looking for a way past the Ferrari. Villeneuve is all over him, look. He's going He's through. Go. Oh, yes. Oh, I don't think. Out goes Michael Schumacher. That didn't work. That didn't work, Michael. You hit the wrong part of him, my friend. I don't think that will cause Villeneuve a problem. And if Villeneuve can just keep going in the points, he's won the World Championship of 1997 because out of the race goes Michael Schumacher. He retires on lap 48. He certainly didn't drive the perfect year, but actually I don't, I don't really remember any drivers in, in a close championship battle driving the perfect year. Did you get worried 
mid-season that he was being distracted with? Do you remember the blonde hair and no, no, attracting not, a not, lot of headlines? No, no, not within within himself, no. I think we were all worried that there was a desire to see him not win it, if you see what I mean. Um, he really felt that within the team? Not Maybe not within the team, but he felt that. He felt that, you know, maybe there was there was powers that, that were not wanting to, I mean, certainly not within the team. I'm not suggesting Patrick and Frank, but just, you know, that, that maybe that the, the establishment wanted Michael to win or, you know, or anything like that. And, and so I think that would be my only, my only fear is that he, he started to sort of grow some conspiracy theories in the middle of the year. And I think that was just born of frustration. I think he was just, just frustrated that, it, that there had been a few, I mean, Magni for example, was a horrible race. We were just terrible. I think as a personality, he, he has so much self-confidence that puts him in good stead in, in pretty much most of the situations he's been in as a racing driver. But the downside of that is it, it, it did mean that he would come up with some pretty weird ideas about why things weren't going right for him. And then you'd have to say, well, maybe you just drove a shit race shack. You know, have you considered that one? Oh, yeah, maybe I did. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the pressure of being in a, in a very tight championship. And in the middle of the year, things aren't going right. You, you just, you know, you look for, for reasons why this might not be working for you. But you don't want to say to yourself, oh, maybe I'm just not good enough. Because if you say that, you will lose. So, you know, people will say, yeah, yeah, well, I can imagine Jack did look, look for excuses. It's not excuses. It's, it's giving your brain an out. Because if your brain comes to the conclusion that you're not good enough for this, then the next seven races aren't going to go well. You've got to come out of that tough period in the middle of the year when things aren't going well, thinking, no, 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 I'm still good enough. That was just a few things that didn't go my way, but I can still do this. And that, I think, is important. You've already mentioned no nerves on race day at Hareth. How many scenarios did you go through oh, with him? Every scenario. <laughs> and and actually, that, that's a good example of how much more professional the sport has become now. And I look at what we do now in race briefs on a Sunday morning or a Saturday evening or pre-qualifying, you know, all the things, what we could do. Do you need a tow? Where do we want to go? You know, when we leave the garage, who do we leave behind? All the teams are doing this now. We did that for the first time back now. Now, maybe Ferrari were already doing it with Michael. I don't think they were, because I think they were just at a growing stage, if you see what I mean. Certainly, I don't think McLaren were doing that yet, because having talked to DC, that all sort of came in 2000, 99, 2000, that sort of arrived for them. So I think this was a bit new for everybody then. We, we actually sat down and went through every possible scenario. What are we going to do if, and you know, as soon as we got off the line and we weren't, we weren't leading and Michael was leading, then everybody's like, oh, what's going on? Frenson's, you know, Jack's let Frenson past. Well, that was part of the plan because we'd already planned what we were going to do if we weren't P1 in, in, into turn one. Yeah, so that was, that was now what we do. But it was, of course, 25 years ago. And Jock, this is a controversial question. <laughs> but I'm going to ask it anyway, because after what happened at Adelaide in 1994 between Schumacher and Damon, did Jack, when he was driving close to Michael try and provoke a reaction from him was that in the back of his mind somewhere that michael, no, no, michael might bite i don't think it was in the back of his mind i don't think he drove in a way to provoke it i think if you speak to jack ask him to confirm this but i we've spoken about it and i'm pretty sure that his view was michael will do it again if michael's put in that position he will do it again because he had no doubt that michael didn't have the same ethical approach to driving that jack did 
he was in no doubt that if that scenario arose again, Michael would do it again. So when he put the car down the inside into turn six, he knew he was either going to overtake Michael or Michael was going to drive into him. I don't think there was any, any doubt in his mind that that would occur to Michael. So in Jack's mind, yeah, he knew what he was risking. He knew what the possible outcome would be. And he wasn't surprised. That's the thing. He certainly wasn't surprised. And proves what a risk taker Jacques was, because if that had taken both of them out... Absolutely. Championship over. Yeah. In favour of Michael Schumacher. Yeah. And of course, people say, ah, yeah, but Michael got disqualified. He wouldn't have been disqualified had he won the championship, I don't think. <laughs> so what was the reaction on the pit wall? At the time? Yeah, at the time. What very was the calm, first? very calm. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, again, Williams was... was v- very good on the pit wall and that was that was Patrick's influence Patrick used to jump up and down and shout in meetings and but actually and and, and often he actually jumped up and down and shouted on the pit wall as well but strangely enough he was actually very very good on the pit wall and I would always advocate young engineers going to Williams back in those days and, and I probably still would if they have the same values because Patrick taught race engineers the right thing to do, if you see what I mean. And it was a very well-controlled pit wall, to be honest. And, and we were quite calm at the time. We had the advantage that Frenson hadn't pitted yet. So actually, he was just behind them. So he wasn't actually in the race with them, but he was on track physically just behind them. So as soon as the incident happened, he was the car behind Jack and he drove alongside Jack and looked at the damage and radioed to us and said, there's some damage on the left-hand side, but it doesn't look too bad. Well, his first comment was, Jack's won the, won the World Championship. Jack's won the World Championship. And we said, OK, calm down, Heinz Harold, and just look at what's going on. Jack puts it down the inside of Michael into turn six. Michael turns into him square on onto the radiator and the side pod. Probably the strongest area he could have hit. So actually, he, he picked just the wrong area, as Martin Brundle pointed out. It didn't work, Michael, my friend, or whatever he said, and bounced off. But it did some fairly cosmetic damage to the side pod made the battery loose and that was the bit that we didn't know at the time the battery was loose and had the battery fallen off it would have not made it to the end but it did but anyway so Heinz Harrell went alongside had a look at this said yeah Jack's won the world championship Jack's won the world championship yeah calm down okay but is there any damage no it looks all right but he was on his in lap because he was pitting so he comes into the pits all excited you know this has been going on he arrives in the, into the pit box and stops in the Benetton pit so <laughs> I don't remember that. Mick Collishall is like, no, you're not here. So friends and okay. So instead of going round McLaren, charges straight through McLaren, taking all their gunnery with them and their guns and two of their guns, yeah, <laughs> and arrives at our pit stop. Now, when he stopped at the at the Benetton stop, one of the front wheel gun men, you know, they're really focused. Pit stop happening, and obviously they were expecting a car in. That's why they were there. And Mick Caldershaw, so they were a pit stop crew ready. And Heinz Harold saw a pit stop crew went in. One of the gun men was so focused, he tried to gun the wheel up, but of course thought that's weird. The nut doesn't fit the the, the gun, gun doesn't yeah. fit the nut, and he's confused. But anyway, of course, then Mick Caldershaw waves him on. So he then drives straight through McLaren, who aren't doing a pit stop. So they're. Their guns are draped, pulled in, so they're out of everybody's way. But if you go through the middle of the pit stop, you just take all the guns with you. So they then arrive in our pit stop with all these guns wrapped round the, round the front. So the, our front gun man looks at this mess, takes all the guns out, puts his gun down, okay, takes all this McLaren gun chip off the thing, takes the hydraulic hose, the, the pneumatic hose off, clears it out of the way, puts it down here, picks the gun up, tries to undo the wheel nut and can't because he's picked the McLaren gun up. Puts the McLaren gun down, 
picks up the Williams gun. And so you think, well, this, this doesn't happen. Enough. This yeah. doesn't happen. But anyway, finally, Ryan Sarrell got his wheels changed and went out. But yeah, he, so he got quite um, excited oh, in all of the... It was a mad race. Yeah. And just from your point of view, um, just how big a deal was it winning the world championship for the first time? Oh, huge, huge, yeah. Unbounded joy in the Williams area with their new Even though we were at Williams, I think it was as special as it should be, if you see what I mean. You know, people's talked about then, you know, Williams won, you know, so many championships at that time, but they still enjoyed winning championships. It, you know, there was nothing blasé about it. You know, Patrick was over the moon. Frank was beside himself. And I think because it had been quite a struggle towards the end of the year and we'd actually had to dig quite deep. No, I, it was very special. And, and for a young engineer... It was just brilliant. You know. and crazy to think that's the most recent championship. I know, yeah. For Williams. Yeah. yeah. And did that title cement your relationship with Jacques, which then, of course, led to him taking you to BAR a couple of years later? Yeah, so I suppose it, that title did cement it. We had a very good relationship already. So I think, you know, we, we, we would probably like to have worked together again. Even if we hadn't won that championship, we would have felt like there was unfinished business. And then, then of course, the BAR thing, you know, people sort of, again, uh, and I don't want to over-defend Jack in a sycophantic way, but I think people do underestimate, you know, what he achieved, both as a driver, because, you know, there's still lots of people that say, yeah, but he never, he, he wasn't a really a worthy world champion. But you think, well, given that he won IndyCar and he won the Indy 500 and he came over and absolutely annihilated his teammates in a, in, a, in a strong car. But then, of course, he had opportunities to go elsewhere. He had opportunities to go to Benetton. He had opportunities to go to McLaren. And he could have won more races. He could have, you know, potentially won more championships. But, again, coming back to this strong ethical sense of sportsmanship that I recognised in him and I've hugely respected in him, he said, I said to Craig, if Craig starts a team, I'll drive for it. And that's what I said, and that's what I'm going to do. So, you know, it was like, well, Craig's got all this deal going on, and but McLaren have come calling, or you probably ought to seriously think about going to McLaren. And he said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not even interested. I'm, I, I said to Craig, if Craig starts a team, I'll drive for it. And so he did. And people would say, oh, you know, he wasted the rest of his career. Well, that is now the team that's dominating F1. So he can probably sleep well at night knowing that he started the team that is currently dominating F1. So, But unfortunately, he wasn't dominating when he was there. That's no, but, the, but I, yeah. I don't think he, I don't seriously think he expected to. I think in an ideal world, he would have liked to have had some success for that, with that team. But, you know, a, a driver's career is only ever really sort of 10, 12, 15 years long, and he'd already been in, in the sport 10 years or eight years or whatever. So he was only ever really going to be around for another five, six, seven, eight years and to build a team from nothing. I think he hoped that it would it would become a, a strong team by the end of his time and he would be in, in the driving seat literally for that time. Yeah, so I, I'm not denying it, it didn't go well for him personally. He, you know, the fact that he stopped driving there in 2003, at the end of 2003 and under not very nice circumstances uh, you know he certainly didn't enjoy that but fundamentally I don't think he would say he regretted starting that team why did you go because it was a new start because it was a new team um, and I certainly I, I enjoyed working with Jack I was 
very, very happy at Williams, very happy at Williams. And I certainly didn't leave because I didn't enjoy Williams or I, absolutely not. It was a, it was, I saw it as a bit of a, not a once in a lifetime opportunity, but certainly a, a different opportunity at that time. It wasn't just going to another team and I wasn't interested in going to another team because I, I really did enjoy Williams and I thought absolutely it was the best team around at that time. Uh, which it was demonstrably, but it was an opportunity to start a brand new team, and that you know that was a hell of a challenge. So I just went for that challenge, really. And you're not someone who shies away from big decisions, do you? Because let's fast forward to 2015 when you make the call to go to mm. Ferrari. That's to, to to leave the championship winning team. In fact, you're quite good at leaving championship winning <laughs> team. But that was a big shout to up sticks, move the whole family out mm. to Maranello. Just talk us through the thought process there. That was sort of in my own head that was because we'd closed the loop on on BAR we'd come full circle you know and you could say well you sort of did that in 2009 no not really it's so you know we started a team from nothing I mean yes they took over the skeleton of, of Tyrrell but very little of that still existed but we'd taken on some very good people at a very early stage you know 98-99 we'd taken on a good I don't know 100 150 people by the end of 98, you know, all that, all the way through 98 and then into 99, which was our first year, we got together a, a core of people. As I say, that core of people stayed there pretty much all the way through. 2009 was too much of a fairy story. We, we weren't ever going to be able to sustain it. We dropped from 700 odd people back down to 360, 370. So we'd halved our size simply because we had to, because they, we didn't have the resource to do anything else. But we just hung on by our fingertips to enough of a, an advantage in 2009 to nail the championship. But we weren't going to be able to sustain it. You know, so my point being, this wasn't that we'd started a team and it had now got to the point where yeah, this is it. We've done it. Now I can move on. You know, you sort of thought, oh, you know, now we're going to have to build it up again because, you know, yeah, we won the championship. But whereas 2014, when I made the decision to leave then and come to Ferrari was because now this is the dominant team. And people would say to me, yeah, but if you leave now, what happens if they win next year? And I said, they will. They will win next year. Don't worry about it. And when I went to Ferrari, I said to, to James Allison, bear in mind, you know, we're building for the next two or three years. And this team are going to be tough to beat in the next couple of years because, you know, they're very strong. Now, I certainly didn't foresee this sort of dominance because I don't think you can foresee this sort of dominance. But certainly you knew they were as strong as McLaren had been in 99, if you see what I mean, or Williams had been in, in 96 or 93, where you knew they were just going to be very hard to beat for the next few years. And that was it for me. They are now a top team and therefore I've sort of done everything I can do here. And to stay there would just be a bit more of the same. They're now just going to repeat and that's what they've done. But for me... That journey had come full circle and, and now was the time to just walk away from that and say, yeah, you know, that we sort of came from nothing to everything. And having worked for two of the biggest teams in England, did you feel there was only one place, yeah, one, they, one notch well, on the yeah, CV? That's the other thing. Take. That's the other thing is there is only one place you can go after that, isn't there? No disrespect to McLaren, but honestly, there's, no, there's only one place you can go after that. And I defy anybody to say they genuinely have never had any desire to work at Ferrari. Uh, you know, anybody in this sport must at some stage think, yeah, it's got to be, you know, you've got to go to Ferrari, haven't you? Because you've experienced how to win in England, how different is the culture, the work ethic, everything at Ferrari? Can you just explain what you found when it, you got it, there? It is very different. To put your finger on the differences 
is very, very difficult. But I think the thing that strikes me probably most is that the word passion is obviously used a lot in the same sentence as Ferrari and Ferrari, passion, Ferrari, Italian passion. But I think that word passion is sort of sums it up because it it maybe reflects the cultural difference in Italians anyway, where they do wear their heart on their sleeve. You know, they're much more emotional. They're much more free with their emotions. You know, they're they're much more willing to show their emotions and, and be more demonstrative and Passion is the right word for what you see when you see what goes on at Ferrari, when they win and when they don't win. There's a whole load of energy there that isn't in the British team. That's not to say the British team isn't enjoying it or isn't as enthusiastic about what they're doing. But I I stop short of using the word passion because maybe what the strength of the British team is, is that they have that ability to not get too emotional about it. There's many times when that will be the tool that you need is to stay emotionally quite detached from what's going on because then you can make good decisions and so the very passion that drives Ferrari is the thing that they also have to overcome you know and that's where you get the Mattia Bonotto who is probably enough Swiss that he can just separate himself from his emotion and the same with Laurent for example Laurent Mikis who is very different in in that way and, and has that ability to not get too emotional that you need that control but For sure, what you notice every day, every conversation almost you have and every meeting you have at Ferrari is that people are just so invested. These people are just so invested in this in every part of their body. Toto's probably listening and going, "Ah, bollocks, I'm just as invested. Yes, you are, Toto. You are just as invested, but you've got an emotional side that you actually, that isn't, trust me, isn't as, as invested as these guys are. That is a hell of a motive force. A lot of the people listening to this will be Ferrari fans. How are you looking for 2022? You've got the simulator coming on song later in the year. I can hear people screaming, Jock, are you going to win next year? (laughs) How's it all looking? It's so difficult to predict, I know, but do you feel you're in a good place? It's not difficult to predict. It's impossible to predict because... And, and actually, you're, you're asking me to go out of my comfort zone. I spend a lot of my time talking to drivers... F1 drivers and our academy drivers about objective expectations. You can't know what the opposition are doing. You you have no idea what the other driver is capable of. You only know what you're capable of. You can only influence what you can do. So if you ask me, where's my confidence level? I'd say relatively high because I see good things going on. I see a lot of development in the right areas. I see a lot of honesty and, and objective view of where we are and where we've gone wrong we're sort of ticking all the boxes that that you say well you know this is this is how you should deal with the issues we've had and this is the way you should develop where that puts us in the pecking order really depends on technically what other people come up with and what we come up with and I have no idea what other people are going to come up with it really is impossible to say and 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 you might say yeah but you know at the end of the day we're Ferrari for God's sake you know surely you should be at the front I think we're all learning now with the way the sport is and, again, with the level that all the teams are at. These teams are separated by a tenth. You know, you look at qualifying last week. It was just crazy. Teams are not separated by seconds anymore. It's not like the guys back in P20 are five seconds off the pace. The people in P20 are 1.4 seconds off the pace. 
and everybody's in between. And that means for the want of a tenth, you can be P5 or P10. So for the want of a tenth next year, I think you could be seeing the difference between P1 and P5, because I think the two front runners will have been caught up and will be in that mix for sure. But it's going to be desperately close unless we see something technologically that somebody's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> never thought of that. <laughs> Maybe we should have done that. You know, the old double diffuser. <laughs> double diffuser. <laughs> Who knows? But you can't know whether that's going to happen. But, you know, if you look at where all the teams are, you have to just have huge respect for all of them at the moment. They are very, very capable. And that's a, a testament to the sport itself. That's how it should be, you know. In one breath, we're all working very hard with F1, with Ross and with Stefano to get the sport to a point where it, it's competitive at all levels. You know, that you can come in as an Aston Martin, as an Alpha Tauri, and you can compete with the front runners. That's what we want. That's what actually we've been working towards. So I can't then sit here as a Ferrari guy and say, well, obviously, we, we should be miles better than them because, you know, they're small teams. No, there are no small teams now because that's the way we've created the sport. That's what we wanted and that's what we've got. Go figure. And we should all embrace that. In embracing that, I've got to sit here and say, if we're a tenth and a half, two tenths off, we could be the fifth quickest car. And that's not where we want to be. But if we've got it right by a tenth and a half, we'll be on pole. And that is where we want to be. And, and I think that's how tight it's going to be. Jock, I feel that we could talk for hours and hours. <laughs> we could. We're going to have to end it there. But thank you very much for your time. It's been great. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. What a wonderful chat. I loved hearing from Jock. And as I said at the end, I can't help feeling we've only scraped the surface of what he's experienced in Formula One. An hour isn't long enough. There were many highlights for me, particularly the way in which he talked about Jacques Villeneuve, both in terms of his quirky driving style and his championship winning season in 1997. At one point, he made me feel like I was on the pit wall with him at Jerez. And there was so much more. His thoughts on Michael Schumacher were fascinating, especially how he did a better job at Mercedes than many people gave him credit at the time. And there was Mick Schumacher and Charles Leclerc and, and, and. Jock, many thanks for your time. It was great to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing you on the other side of the summer break at Spa. And before we move on, don't forget to send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Jock. Tell me everything. Were you at Jerez in 1997? Or how about Monaco in 2012 when Schumacher qualified on pole? Let me know and remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Nicholas Latifi after last week's show. Following his point scoring finish in Hungary, it was the perfect time to have him as a guest. And lots of you got in touch to say that. Fraser sent in this. Just finished the pod, brilliant as always, and I never knew how much of an insightful guy Latifi actually is. Hope he gets plenty of success with Williams in the next few years. Well, I agree with you, Fraser. Nicky is an intelligent and articulate man, and it was great to hear from him. John Lewis said this, I love the Beyond the Grid series. Thanks, John. Just listened to the Nicholas Latifi episode, a very nice guy, but I felt he lacks the self-confidence to be a Formula One driver. I hope he develops after the Hungarian Grand Prix result. Confidence is king, isn't it, John? Let's hope the result in Hungary spurs him on to even greater things in the future. 
And Ande Dornerkamp sent in a slightly intriguing comment. I'm 99% sure the unnamed man that Latifi talks about who got him into Formula One is a family friend of mine. Oh, pray tell Ande. Who is this clever man? And Sava said this. Very insightful from somebody that's not talked about much. My impressions of Nicky were of a down-to-earth, relatable guy. And he's definitely shown that here as well. Very happy for his first points. Good luck in the second half of the season, Nicky. I've definitely underestimated him. Well, Sava, that's the thing about sitting down with someone for an hour on Beyond the Grid. You can have a proper chat during which you hope their true colours come across. And Anthony Hall had this gushing review of this episode. He says, decent listen this. <laughs> well, thanks, Anthony. I'm glad that you liked the episode so much. Now, I could read out lots more messages, but we'll leave it there. And thanks to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. And I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jock. And remember, send in your thoughts and stories on him. And as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>